This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about Iran. It's been a full year since President Trump ended U.S. participation in the nuclear deal that sets limits on Iran's nuclear program. But in just the last few days, tensions between the two countries have ramped up considerably. Washington is levying new sanctions against Iran and is sending warships into the region, and Tehran is threatening to resume enriching uranium at higher levels and also appears to be sending illicit oil shipments to Syria. Where is all this going? And are we even possibly headed towards war? To help us answer these questions, we have two distinguished experts. First, Ariane Tabatabai, who is a political scientist at the Rand Corporation. She is also co-author of the book Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China. Welcome, Ari. It's great to have you on Deep Dish. Thanks for having me again. And joining us as well is Michael Singh, who is the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. He was previously a Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council in the George W. Bush administration. Mike, great to have you back in Deep Dish as well. Thanks very much. So there's a lot going on um, in terms of the interactions currently between um, Iran and the U.S., and Ariane, let me start with you. Of this range of, of uh, activities that's happened recently, what do you see as the most important of, of all the things that have happened and why? Huh. Well, um, you know, there's, as, you, as you said, there's a lot going on. And, and I think many of, of the activities, many of the events we've seen are important in their own right. Um, I think the most significant thing um, has been the announcement by Iran um, on May the 8th um, to resume certain activities um, in, in, in an incremental sort of way uh, and uh, really trying to dial up the pressure against the Europeans in particular to act um, and to afford Iran the economic recovery that it's been looking for and it doesn't feel like it's been receiving uh, over the past few years. Uh, this is a bit of a departure from uh, the past year uh, where Iran had made certain statements, but it had largely tried to um, sort of keep the status quo uh, going. Uh, we were anticipating, anticipating some sort of action, uh, but, but it's finally here, and I think that's, that's been a, uh, the most significant Thing we've seen in, in the past few months. So, Mike, do you agree with that? I do agree. I think we've entered a new phase, uh, actually, of uh, this confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. You know, I mean, prior to uh, the events of the last week or so, uh, for the Trump administration, it was sort of the best of both worlds, you could argue, because they were ramping up pressure on Iran to try to get this new, bigger, better deal that the president has talked about. But Iran was largely remaining within the limits of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran Nuclear Agreement. And in a sense, that was unexpected, I think, for a lot of people. But it also wasn't producing the policy outcomes that I think the United States wanted. Obviously, there were no new negotiations with Iran. The Iranian regime uh, was not really on the brink of collapse. Um, and there's, in other words, there was a big effect from sanctions, but not much movement in terms of policy. So the U.S., I think, made a decision to double down on sanctions in an effort to, let's say, stop Iran from just kind of waiting out the pressure in hopes that, you know, maybe President Trump would win a second term and they could just hold out. And Iran, in turn, decided to stop uh, complying with the JCPOA, not right away, but, but essentially to threaten 
uh, an end to its compliance as of this uh, expiration of the 60-day deadline. I, I think that really puts us in a new phase because I don't think the Europeans can do what the Iranians need to do. And unless Iran is willing to accept some kind of faith-saving solution from Europe, we're back in a cycle of escalation like we had in the mid-2000s. So before we pursue down that escalation route, I want to pick up on this point about what the Europeans can deliver. And Ariane, you had this really um, smart op-ed in the New York Times uh, that explored exactly this question, if the Iranian nuclear deal could be saved. Uh, can it? Well, so I think the Rouhani statement is actually pretty significant uh, in giving us some clues um, as to what the Iranians might be looking for. Um, the statement, um, you know, I, I listened to the 30 minutes of it several times, and um, there are a number of caveats in there that I don't think have been reflected very well in our media. Um, and, and, and I think that those caveats are essentially designed to give the Rouhani government some sort of flexibility uh, with regard to how it proceeds and what it's willing to accept in, in 60 days from, from the Europeans. Uh, just to give you one example of, uh, of these caveats I'm talking about, um, Rouhani mentions that uh, if in 60 days the Europeans are unable to deliver what Iran is looking for, um, and he highlights uh, specifically two items, um, uh, the oil and bank Banking restrictions that Iran is uh, is facing, uh, he said that Iran would make a decision uh, to resume uh, the the activities the, that uh, that pertain to heavy water reactor uh, to the heavy water reactor in Iraq. Uh, now the key word here is will make a decision rather than um, it will resume those activities. And I think that is designed to give some sort of flexibility to the Iranians where in 60 days, um, you know, in a number of weeks, if nothing has been done, if they don't feel like the Europeans are delivering as they, they have promised, then they can say, well, you know, we have made the decision right now to do X, Y, and Z, um, and, and to actually, uh, again, take a more sort of uh, restraint approach um, than, um, than what I think many people in Iran would, would like the, the government to, to take. So um, the, the statement itself is, is designed to buy Iran some time. Um, it's also designed to buy the Rouhani government some sort of political capital as it continues the implementation of, of the deal. Um, I'll, I'll also add this. I, I don't believe that the Iranians want the JCPOA to collapse right now. I don't believe that they want to have to stop implementing or actually to start violating the terms of the agreement. Um, I, I think what they're doing here is really to, to try to, to continue the process through 2020, through November 2020, to be, to be precise, when we will have elections and which will determine what happens next, uh, whether um, the, the Trump administration gets a second term um, or if a Democrat perhaps, or a different Republican wins who may be inclined, especially if it's a Democrat, uh, to go back into the JCPOA. And we can debate whether or not that's, that's feasible. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not very optimistic, but, but the point is that for, for the Iranians, at least, uh, the next few months are a period of wait and see. And I think they've done everything they can to, to, um, uh, to do just that, to, to kind of continue this period of, um, uh, to, to buy themselves some, some time and some flexibility here. So, Mike, you talked about you know, the administration really doubling down on the maximum pressure approach. These uh, waivers that they withdrawn that allowed Iran to export oil to a number of countries in the world um, being a very significant economic sanction. 
is there more that we can do to turn up the economic pressure on Iran, or basically was that the last card that we could that we could play? That plus uh, you know some sanctions on steel, aluminum, iron, copper industries, etc. Are there additional things we can do on the economic side? There are additional things we can do, and I do think that's the road we're headed down at this stage. I think U.S. policy is maximum pressure. Uh, as the Trump administration has called it, combined with this sort of broad diplomatic opening where the president says, call me to the Iranians. <laughs> um, and I think there is more we can do along the lines of maximum pressure. You know, the, the sanctions that were just announced on industrial metals is a good example of that. I think when the oil sanctions were came out, or when the sort of non-renewal of oil waivers, to be, uh, to be more precise... People assume that that was sort of our last bullet, that this was the most we could do. And it is by far the most significant step that we can take. But now I think we're moving on to what are called sectoral sanctions. These uh, sanctions on Iran's industrial metals industry are the first sectoral sanctions since 2013 and probably a sign of things to come. There are other sectors to Iran's economy, the automotive sector, things like this, and those might be the next target. These are significant because of two things, really. One, they, they, like Iran's oil export industry, provide Iran with sources of foreign exchange. That foreign exchange is incredibly important to Iran being able to withstand these sanctions um, and continue to, for example, buy imports of things like food and, and whatever else it may need, as well as pay people overseas like its proxy. Second, um, these are important because they also are sources of employment within Iran. And so targeting these broad sectors could theoretically lead to labor unrest and things like that inside Iran. So, so there is more pressure that can be brought to bear. And I, this sort of takes me back to Ari's last answer. And while I hope she's right, I don't know that I believe that these caveats that President Rouhani put on his statement were as significant uh, as, as Ari believes they are, because I think that ultimately, having set this deadline of 60 days, it will be tough for President Rouhani after 60 days, if he gets nothing, to say, well, we've decided not to do anything. Uh, setting this kind of deadline for a policymaker generally forces your hand. And I think the question really ultimately is, what is Iran willing to accept from the Europeans? If he's willing to accept sort of symbolic political or faith-saving measures, such as Europe finally activating this uh, so-called special purpose vehicle, or INSTEX, then perhaps the Europeans can, can satisfy him. They've been holding off on activating it because they've been waiting for some steps on Iran's side, some sensible steps uh, relating to uh, money laundering and so forth, protections against the illicit use of the channel. Yeah, and this channel, yeah, just to be Iran clear, would would allow um, there to be payments for oil to go to Iran um, that wouldn't have to pass through the U.S. system, which is under sanction, right? That's the point of that channel. Uh, it would allow for payments, although not at first for oil. Europeans have said that only non-sanctioned transactions would take place. So, so humanitarian transactions, for example, food, medicine, and so forth, and it might have some other limitations as well. But the point, though, is that if ultimately Iran is looking for significant steps from the Europeans, the Europeans, I think, simply cannot deliver those steps. I mean, the power of American sanctions is that they 
essentially compel private sector commercial entities in other countries not to do business with Iran. And there isn't that much that the governments of those countries can do, um, short of their own forms of compulsion, uh, to get those uh, transactions to continue. Um, so so I, I don't know that there's much that can happen before the 60-day deadline uh, approaches. So, Ari, how do you see the 60-day deadline? What happens after 60 days? Yeah, so, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what Mike said. Um, I think the, the um, main thing where um, I, I see things perhaps a little differently is that I, I think the statement um, buys enough flexibility uh, just by virtue of the fact that Rouhani was very vague in the way he described what he's looking for from the Europeans, in addition to being fairly vague about what happens next. I mean, he laid out steps. Um, he talked about, um, you know, after 60 days, Iran wouldn't see itself bound by the provisions limiting uh, the, the level at which Iran can enrich uranium, um, and also the, the heavy water uh, provisions I, I mentioned earlier on. Um, but he, he, again, he added things. Um, he, he, he added um, caveats such as, you know, we will make a decision about that, uh, which already buys a bit of flexibility, but also the fact that he was not very specific about what it is that Iran is looking for. Um, and that leads me to believe that they are, uh, you know, that they are fairly um, they understand the Europeans are limited in what they can achieve and what they can deliver. Um, and so the Iranians are not looking for the magic bullets. Um, what they're looking for is um, political uh, and fairly you know, symbolic steps that will uh, allow them to buy some more um, political will at home to continue the implementation of, of the nuclear deal. Uh, I don't think that they, are, they have the illusion that uh, the Europeans will be able to magically circumvent U.S. sanctions or that they will you know, pick, uh, uh, pick sides and, and that that side will be Iran in uh, the ongoing tensions between the two countries. So, well, this set of economics issues has been playing itself out on the security side, we are, we've seen action a, as well, um, uh, including declaring the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, and then the decision to deploy a U.S. carrier strike group and, and bomber task force um, into the region. Mike, how do you view this? Is this uh, an escalation, and is it dangerous? Well, I think that when the U.S. decided to attempt to take Iran's oil exports down to zero um, by not renewing the, the waivers that allowed Iran to export around, you know, a million to a million point three barrels of oil per day. The, a lot of people feared that Iran's reaction would be to target uh, U.S. interests, allied interests, or regional energy infrastructure, regional energy interests in response to that, because Iran has often said through the years, that if it isn't permitted to export oil, it won't permit others in the region to export oil either, especially U.S. allies, of course. And this has often been um, looked at in the context of Iran's threats to close the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, but I think, you know, and, and you can view the news in uh, this past week of the targeting of some oil tankers in the Gulf, some Saudi oil tankers off the coast of the United Arab Emirates, that ultimately these types of retaliation could take other forms. They could take the form of proxy attacks on U.S. forces, proxy attacks on U.S. interests or allies, 
as well as these types of lower-level attacks on regional energy infrastructure, things which are less likely to provoke perhaps an open conflict. Obviously, it's in the U.S. interest to deter those kinds of steps. And so moving assets to the region, assets which uh, reportedly were already on their way in any event already planned to be deployed in the region um, anyway, as well as issuing warnings, um, you could argue is actually just prudent deterrence in an effort to show Iran that, no, we will not, in fact, sort of sit back uh, if you're intending to target our interests. And Ari, how do you see the the uh, military deployment? Is uh, is that an effective deterrence approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Mike. I think that um, a lot of the activity we're seeing right now is, um, first of all, sort of business as usual, uh, perhaps being packaged slightly differently, and the narrative around it may be a, a little more forceful than what you would normally have. Uh, but but a lot of the the activities in, in the Gulf specifically have been fairly standard, um, and and so we should we, we shouldn't sort of freak out about them, right? <laughs> um, I, whether it's effective deterrence, um, I, I think it remains to be seen. I think that the challenge here is not so much. Um, that the Iranians want a conflict or that the U.S. wants a conflict, but rather, uh, you know, accidental escalation, um, which can be a, a result of a lack of channels of communication and, and ways, you know, off-ramps that, that would allow us to sort of de-escalate tensions. Um, I want to add one more thing, which is that, um, interestingly, if you look at the most hardline elements of the regime, uh, their interpretation of what's going on in the United States is actually fairly um, reasonable. They, they're looking at it saying, well, you know, this is deterrence, this is business as usual. They're not looking at um, the carrier um, uh, movement or any of the sort of news reports that we've seen over the past week that have um, uh, led a number of people in, uh, to, to go into a frenzy. They're seeing all of that as sort of, you know, this is this is not new. This is something that, you know, it's a continu it's a continuation of of traditional U.S. Um, foreign policy. So uh, they're not overreacting in that sense. What has been interesting, though, is that you have um, a lot more. Uh, wariness, more concerns coming from the Rouhani camp, the more moderate, traditionally moderate camp, um, who are using this this opportunity to say that, look, you know, the status quo is not sustainable. Uh, we need to be doing something, and we may very well end up in a conflict with the United States. Uh, which, of course, the hardliners have pushed back and said, well, you know, again, this is this is this is normal. This is um, uh, business as usual um, uh, in in the U.S. If, if I can, I want to just chime in with something because I think that I think that uh, you know Ari hits on something here when she talks about accidental escalation. You know, it's it's true that deploying bomber squadrons, carrier strike groups to the Middle East is a, is a pretty conventional step by the United States. It's right out of the kind of deterrence playbook, and and it's something that Iran has seen many times before, and thus is it, likely not to overreact to. Um, I think the, that if there's escalation, however, you know, accidental can be a misleading term because we worry about accidental conflicts in places where, for example, like, you know, like Syria, where you have U.S. and Russian forces operating side by side, not targeting each other, but in, in a crowded environment, um, mistakes and accidents can happen. In between the U.S. and Iran, we worry about something else, I think. You know, Iran, if it takes a, a step to target U.S. interests, it will be quite deliberate. And they will, I think, try to calibrate their steps 
so as not to prompt American retaliation against Iran itself, which is why they work through proxies uh, and using deniable attacks that they don't necessarily own up to right away. Um, and the, the, the attack on these oil tankers is a good example. Of, of course, we don't know if it was um, perpetrated by Iran, and that's part of the point. It takes time to attribute these attacks. Sometimes you can never attribute them uh, with any certainty, and therefore it makes responding more difficult. Cyber attacks can be the same way. I, I think what what is different in this environment is that the Trump administration is, offers a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, it President Trump has been clear that he does not want more military involvement in the Middle East. On the other, President Trump seems perhaps more inclined than his predecessors to respond forcefully to provocations. Look, for example, at uh, his response to the Syrian chemical weapons attacks uh, over the past couple of years, in contrast to President Obama's uh, reluctance to respond to such steps. So I, I think it probably will be harder for the Iranians to to accurately judge what is uh, an attack that doesn't merit American retaliation versus one that would bring American retaliation. And that maybe is where uh, some of the risk enters in here. So in a crisis, one of the things that can often be useful if there are channels of communication between the two sides so that uh, there can be at least some sort of dialogue about what's happening and and, and why and, and better understanding uh, to avoid escalation. In this case, is there any channel of communication between the Trump administration and, and Iran? There is a channel. It's the channel that has existed now for um, many years, decades, in fact, and that's uh, the Swiss channel. So the United States and, and Iran can still pass messages to one another via the Swiss, who are the United States protecting power in Tehran. And in fact, there was an allusion to this in recent days uh, where there was this report, which I actually found a bit dubious, that the U.S. had passed the White House phone number to the Iranians via the Swiss. Um, but the fact <laughs> is that the United States and Iran have used this channel many times in the past to pass messages about uh, warnings, threats, and so forth. Yeah, I, I guess the other, and this may be a reach, but to just ask about a parallel, I, I, in another form of at least rhetorical escalation in a different part of the world was President Trump's uh, escalation over the North Korea um, situation in which he talked about fire and fury um, uh, raining down on the on the North Koreans. And today, you know, uh, quite famously talks proudly about his relationship with uh, Kim Jong-un. Are the Iranians paying attention to that in terms of trying to interpret Trump's behavior? Or is there anything that he established there that could be helpful or unhelpful in this situation? Yeah, I mean, the Iranians were paying very close attention to what was going on uh, with North Korea. Um, and, you know, I mean, there is a um, part of the Iranian establishment that watched the events that led to uh, the first summit and then what has happened since, saying, uh, look, the North Koreans were right. They, they went ahead, they acquired a nuclear weapon, and now the world has to sort of contend with them, even though... Uh, the United States doesn't like the fact that the, there are nuclear weapons in, in on the Korean Peninsula, but they have to accept it. And, and so um, they deal with North Korea in a different way from the way they've dealt with, with Iran. 
There's also been um, some discussion about the best approach to the Trump administration's uh, negotiating tactics, um, whether or not the, the Iranians would be better off actually coming to the table and negotiating with uh, President Trump rather than waiting for um, the next administration, uh, because, you know, the, 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 administra the, the Trump administration has demonstrated that it's willing to um, dial up the pressure pretty significantly, but it's also willing to dial it down uh, pretty quickly. Um, as was the case in North Korea. And so um, there have been discussions about whether or not it would make sense for, uh, for Iran to come to the table and get a similar agreement or at least to try to get a, a similar sort of agreement to what was um, – not that it was an agreement, but the, what was the, the the settlement that was reached essentially between uh, the United States and, and North Korea um, in the in the first summit? Uh, so yeah, they've they've been paying close attention to um, to that, and it's generated quite a lot of debate about what should what should happen. Mike, do you think this could be effective that the Iranians make? come to Trump to negotiate? Well, there have been U.S.-Iran negotiations under just about every president, uh, in fact. And so it would be, you know, unsurprising if there were U.S.-Iran negotiations under President Trump. And President Trump has, in fact, said that that is what he wants. Now, um, it, that doesn't mean that it will be easy or uncontroversial, for sure. I'm sure that there are some in the administration um, who will be very skeptical about uh, U.S.-Iran negotiations at this time and would, would prefer to allow pressure time to work, so to speak. Um, but, there, but historically, the U.S. and Iran have, um, have talked to each other, which is a bit contrary to the conventional wisdom. I think what you won't have uh, between the U.S. and Iran is the type of engagement you had between the U.S. and North Korea. And so if President Trump is really waiting for the supreme leader of Iran, for example, uh, or maybe even President Rouhani to reach out, that, I think, is unlikely to happen. North Korea, for its own reasons, was looking for the legitimization that came with the Kim-Trump summit. Uh, I think for Iran, it's almost the reverse. They would see the idea of sitting down with the American president as uh, one which was dangerous for them. Remember, President Rouhani didn't want to sit down with President Obama because he worried about uh, the sort of effect it would have on him at home. And Ari, how do you see this playing out Um at home, the, the sanctions are biting. The economic pressure is higher. President Rouhani talked about, you know, this could be a situation as severe as the war between Iran and, and Iraq, but basically trying to steal the population to persevering um, through this time of economic hardship. Can that work? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the appetite for um, negotiations between the U.S. and Iran is currently lacking. Um, and that's not to say that in four years, if we have another um, uh, Trump administration, a second term in the Trump administration, that it wouldn't happen. But at least in the first term, I don't see that happening. Uh, I think there has been too much pushback domestically. Um, the Supreme Leader, who typically uh, doesn't just dictate what happens um, in foreign policy, but who sort of sets the framework for uh, negotiations and for uh, foreign policy uh, decision-making, uh, is very much against any kind of negotiations. And that sort of goes, you know, leads him to go back to the pre-2003, um, 2000, sorry, 2013 um, uh, status quo ante, where he was very much uh, rejecting the, the notion of any kind of negotiation. So I think domestically within Iran, uh, that is not going to happen, at least in the first term of the Trump administration. Uh, and I think that 
if there is any kind of appetite for negotiation, it is to uh, it is to to be limited to the JCPOA itself, to negotiating with the Europeans, uh, and to try to sustain the deal rather than coming back to the table to negotiate a so-called big for big uh, kind of uh, agreement with the United States. So we've been talking about this uh, this set of developments in a primarily a bilateral way between the U.S. and uh, and Iran. I want to broaden the aperture just a little bit. And, and Ari, this is the, the the subject of of your book about how does this uh, this set of interactions and this uh, this increasing tension how do the relationship Iran's relationship with Russia and China play into this set of dynamics? Is it relevant, and if so, how? Yeah, it's absolutely relevant. The Chinese and the Russians are uh, part of the uh, negotiating, um, you know, the countries that negotiated the the nuclear deal with um, Iran and are now the remain among the remaining parties to to the agreement. So. Um, they are um, trying to sustain uh, the deal, and they have an interest in the JCPOA's um, survival. They play an important um, role in the nonproliferation provisions um, of the deal, the, the Chinese especially, um, and uh, and the Russians, of course, are very involved in the Iranian nuclear program as a, as a supplier. Um, but also um, in the case of China, as a as a very important. Um, um, uh, factor in Iran's uh, economic uh, recovery and, and sanctions relief. Uh, the thing, though, is that, and again, going back to the, to the statement that was, um, that was made by Rouhani, uh, the Iranians didn't come to the negotiating table to uh, work with the Chinese and, and the Russians. They were already doing that. And so for them, the primary target um, in their decision to come back to the negotiating table in 2013 was to open up channels of communication with the United States and um, to open up and deepen um, economic channels with the Europeans. So Europe really here uh, now is the, the primary reason why um, Iran is continuing the, the nuclear, um, to, is sustaining the nuclear deal. They want to continue working with the Europeans, uh, and they really see Europe as the, the key factor um, uh, in, in, the sustain, in the sustaining of, of the nuclear deal. Uh, so I, I see the Russians and the Chinese playing a bit of a secondary role in, in that front, uh, but I suspect Mike will, will disagree with me. <laughs> Mike? Well, I don't know that I disagree, in fact. I, you know, I, I think that if you go back to the history of this issue, the United States made a decision in the mid-2000s that we needed the Russians and Chinese to be a part of the P5 plus 1 process because uh, our strategy centered in part on getting U.N. Security Council resolutions passed uh, that would impose sanctions on Iran. And for that, you need Russia and China. Um, the Russians played a role of essentially Iran's advocate within the U.N. Security Council, delaying resolutions, diluting resolutions, but ultimately went along with those resolutions um, uh, six times in a row. The Chinese were less involved in the process, period. If you fast forward to today, um, I don't think that Russia is uh, a tremendously valuable partner for the Iranians when it comes to this issue. Um, they're obviously partners in other ways. For example, in Syria, they work closely together despite some differences um, because they both want to sort of save the Assad regime and, and prevent the United States from accomplishing its objectives. But Russia is not a big export market for Iran. Russia doesn't have significant capacity uh, in the Middle East to 
protect Iran in a way. And, of course, the two countries have a, a, a negative uh, history, a tortured history. If you look at the Iran-China relationship, it's a much more interesting relationship uh, in the modern day because China, which is, has expanding ambitions around the world, including in the Middle East, I think sees Iran as a country which is strategically important to it, uh, especially for its energy security, because Iran is the one country on the Persian Gulf littoral not allied with the United States, uh, and it also offers potential land routes uh, for energy to China. Um, however, I think China overall is still pretty indecisive, hesitant, uh, and so forth when it comes to its overall commitment to the Middle East. Um, so I don't think China is going to, again, sort of ride in any way to Iran's rescue, not, not during this decade and maybe not during the next decade. So ultimately, Iran is facing the United States um, by itself without any sort of uh, key allies. Um, and it has, you know, has some experience doing that, obviously. But, but I think even today is not really looking to Russia and China, as Ari said for any significant help here. So as we close, I promise I won't ask you to predict the future um, uh, about what's going to happen here. But what I would like to ask each of you to do is to, to um, indicate what is the most important thing uh, that our listeners should focus on as events continue to emerge in this in, in this dynamic between the, the U.S. And, and Iran. What are in order to understand where things are going, um, what's the most important thing they should follow? Well, look, I, I think right now the most important thing is what Iran decides to do on its nuclear program. And this goes back to the conversation about this 60-day deadline that President Rouhani set. If it's a serious deadline and if Iran begins to ramp up its nuclear activities, uh, even in an incremental way, um, that could force the United States to really make some difficult decisions because increasing its enriched uranium stockpile, increasing the level of, of its uranium enrichment will cause Iran's breakout time to start to diminish. I really doubt that President Trump wants to uh, hand his successor um, a, a reduced Iranian breakout time or, frankly, to deal with a very short Iranian nuclear breakout time in a second term should he win one. Um, so this will it would force some difficult decisions for the United States, whether that decision is to further escalate ourselves or engage in uh, a different kind of, of uh, policy, a different kind of diplomatic process, perhaps. So that, I think, is really going to be the, the driving factor here. And Ari? Yeah, I, I fully agree with, with Mike. Um, I, I think the, the uh, one more thing to, to be added here is that if the Iranians decide to actually follow in and, and put their money where their mouth is and, and start to take on um, activities after the 60-day period, uh, they will also be looking to, at a, a Europe that would be pushed closer to the United States. Currently, the gap between Europe and the U.S. is pretty, uh, is pretty wide on the nuclear issue, at least. Um, you know, on, I, I think the Europeans share many of the same um, concerns with Iran uh, that the United States has um, but on the ballistic missile program, Iran's regional activities, human rights, and so on and so forth. Uh, but at least on the nuclear deal, they, they do believe that the Trump administration did not take the best course of action, that the, the ideal way to deal with it would have been to keep the JCPOA and talk about extending some of the sunsets and, and to, to try to add to the, to the deal, essentially. Um, 
Now, if the Iranians in 60 days begin to enrich uranium at a higher level, for example, or if they uh, resume activities on the heavy water reactor, as they've, they've threatened to do, uh, then the Europeans will very quickly uh, join the U.S. camp on the nuclear um, issue, and, and we'll see perhaps a more united um, EU and U.S. front than we have seen in the past year. So Ariane Tabatabai of the RAND Corporation and Michael Singh of the Washington Institute, this has been a fascinating conversation, very helpful to understand um, a set of events that are unfolding very, very quickly and a way to track them as they continue. I want to say thanks to both of you for being on Deep Dish again. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'd like to send a special thank you to Evan Fazio, who for the last few years has produced this podcast and was present at its birth. We're wishing you all the best in your future endeavors, Evan. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.